Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Okay, good. I, I think I'll start. I'm, I'm going to probably take a little while, so relax yourself whilst I communicate. Um, Please. I'm going to start by, thank you, David. <laughs> it's so good to be here. I love it here. I do this instead of clapping, and uh, I figured it's just time to share why that is, and it's because I have nerve damage. And so if I clap, it just sets off the, the nerve damage. But this is also the, the deaf way of clapping. And so I do it in community with our, our deaf uh, com- community, but also because I can't do this. So that's why I'm the only one doing this. That's why. Okay. Um, when, as you listen to scripture today, and I, I want to share another story, um, you're going to hear the word, the Jews, quite a lot. Um, when I first joined this church, and I was singing in the wonderful cantata that Alan and Nathan um, put on, and I invited a dear, dear friend of mine who was Jewish to come hear the music because it was such beautiful music. I didn't realize that the, the reading was going to be from John. And John, of all the Gospels, as you probably know, I think the, the term the Jews is used about 70 times in John and maybe twice everywhere else. And so, so poor Rachel, where'd my mic go? So Rachel was sitting there enjoying the music, and the Jews, you know. And, you know, I saw her kind of shrinking in her seat a little afterwards. I was like, Rachel, I'm just, I just didn't even think. And she said, oh, I'm fine. It was fine until people started staring at me. <laughs> that didn't happen. That didn't happen. So she made a joke out of it. But I want you to keep in mind that John was written, you know, 100 years or so, we think, after the life of Christ. And by then, this concept of the Jews had taken on a whole new meaning. Uh, we all know Jesus was Jewish. We all know that he never intended to start a Christian church. By the time John was written, there was more of a separate identity and the remembrance of the temple authorities, not necessarily the community, but some in the community, as you'll hear in the scripture. Uh, and so just keep that in mind as you listen. And the other thing I want you to listen for as David reads, you're almost, you're almost going to read, as David reads is just listen. We, we're not starting, by the way, at the beginning of the passage. This is about the man born blind. It's a very long passage, and so I'm starting after Jesus has already put the mud on his eyes and healed the man born blind, uh, kind of in the middle of the story. But as this is how the community responds. And so as you're listening, I want you to particularly listen to how did this man's parents handle this situation that they really uh, probably weren't expecting. Thank you, David, for reading this morning. So from the Gospel of John... Chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son. And that he was born blind. But we do not know how it is that he sees. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, 
He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. Do I have? Thank you. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God... He could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, David, for reading. Do you stop being a Christian if you stop going to church? I know what my grandmother would say. She was married to a Methodist minister, or her father, rather, was a Methodist minister. Sunday morning comes, you wash your face, you put on your Sunday clothes, you go to church. End of discussion. But it isn't that simple these days, it seems. Uh, In days where we have spiritual but not religious on the one hand, mega churches on the other, and where people seem to search out community in almost any place but inside a church, on the internet, in cafes. Do you stop being a Methodist if you lose your community? I think of the beginnings of our church and of John Wesley riding across the plains to gather us in, to gather us. 
He brought church to those who had no church home, and he blew wide open the doors of some stuffy, protected churches. To those with no safe spiritual harbor, he brought sanctuary. And to some, to those churches who refused sanctuary to others, he brought controversy. In a time when community had more to do with preserving mores and social roles, he returned us to God's word as the basis for coming together. We Methodists practice open table because of John Wesley. All, all are welcome. In fact, all are to be gathered to the table of grace because John Wesley believed that the act of communion itself could bring about conversion. Why wait to be converted to come when just being together can turn hearts and souls toward God? Gather, gather us in. Our church community is at best a part of our soul. We are social creatures and more. We learn about who we are through our relations with others. We learn how to become ourselves, ourselves, our sometimes different, our always unique self, through the eyes of others and through our relationship with a loving God, through the hands of those who act behind the scenes, if just as much, if not more, than the one speaking the word in the pulpit. So what happens to us if we lose our church community? I'm blessed with an amazing spiritual director. Some of you have heard me speak about him. And his story is amazing as well, his journey. Uh, He gave me permission to share that story, at least a part of it, but he asked that I not use his name, so I'll just call him Father John. Um, Father John entered Jesuit training right out of high school. He knew for a long time that to be a priest was his path. And he studied for 13 years. I think seminary takes a long time. And then the ordination process. Oh, no, 13 years. He dedicated in study and self-search and discerning his call before he was ordained a priest. And then, and then he was a priest for many years. And then he met the woman who he was to marry. Just after Vatican II, they did indeed marry And the Catholic Church defrocked him. Father John lost his role, his community, and his livelihood for the love of a woman. And he wasn't the only one at that time. Ethicists, scholars, thinkers left the church to marry at great cost to themselves, and I would say at great cost to the church. It's crazy, Father John reflected to me when we were talking about this part of his life journey. In a time when there were fewer and fewer Catholic men called to the cloth, and there were thousands of laity for every priest, thousands. And when religious women have spent their whole lives in dedicated service to God and cannot be ordained, and when married, married men cannot be ordained, the church needs to change. And now today he has hope for his church. The new pope, it's a time when the Catholic Church is hearing words I think they've longed to hear. Grace, acceptance, love, inclusion. And of course, Father John found new ways to serve God. He, he had to. It was his calling. He and his wife became teachers, counselors, 
wonderful Christian educators and authors. Um, He had to remake his life, but he did. And yet his voice, as far as the church was concerned, was the voice of an outcast. Uh, Maybe that has been to the benefit of those people he reached in a secular setting. Those who sought his counsel still. But I can't help thinking that his voice was too valuable to be lost, to be excluded from a church in need. Whose voices do we lose when we make outcasts? Now, I first gave this uh, sermon in Fall City in March, and things have changed since then, but I'm going to read it from the standpoint of, of that time, and I'll update a few things when we come to the end. At that time, some of you may know the story of, of uh, Frank Schaefer. And if you don't, I think it's, uh, it's part of a, a story of our church right now that needs to be aired. I, in first service, I talked about the elephant in the room and how uh, some families, and I didn't say whether or not I was talking about my family, dealt with conflict by not talking about it. Just kind of walk around the elephant in the room and never name it. But everybody knows it's there. So without naming it and, and looking at it and examining it and listening, it becomes bigger somehow and, and somehow more threatening. And so part of the message today, I hope, is really to put a name on uh, an issue that, that is bubbling in the church and has been for the last year uh, particularly. So Frank uh, Schaefer is at the heart of this story and, and, and several other people as well. Uh, he is an elder in the Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference. He has four children, three of whom are gay. Three. And in 2007, in Massachusetts, just after same-sex marriage was legalized there, he performed the ceremony for his son. Uh, He didn't anticipate the aftermath. And in fact, it didn't come until six years later when the son of an employee that he had had to fire brought a complaint against him for that marriage uh, that he performed. And last November, the church defrocked him. He said he never thought it would go that far. He lost his role, his livelihood, his community for the love of his son. And I would say his sense of justice. And he's not the only one. Reverend Thomas Ogletree, an 80-year-old retired elder, uh, was charged earlier that month for presiding over the union of his gay son. His trial has been postponed indefinitely. The Reverend Stephen Heiss of the Upper New York Annual Conference um, was expected to face trial for presiding at same-sex marriages, including his own daughter's wedding. In 2002, the Reverend Sarah Thompson Tweedy of New York Annual Conference facing a formal complaint for being an out-of-the-closet lesbian. And the Reverend William McIlvaney, who was a dear friend of, of Shannon Hamrick's, our deacon, 85 years old, battling cancer, unable even to stand, had to sit through the ceremony uh, that he performed for a gay couple who had been together 50 years. Reverend McIlvaney, pastor emeritus at Perkins Theological Seminary, professor emeritus, I should say, and pastor emeritus, said that he was moved from his own sense of 
justice to do this against uh, the Book of Discipline. But back to Reverend Schaefer. In an, in an interview after his formal defrocking, he's, he was shaking. He was so shocked at what things had come to. And he said, in 20 years, for 20 years I've served this church. And it has now put me aside. I'm completely shunned. And it feels just awful. And yet he said he would not consider leaving the Methodist Church for a denomination that has changed its standing, its teaching on homosexuality. He said, it's not that easy. When a church is your spiritual home, all my children were baptized in this church. I don't know how to be a minister outside of this church. So will Mr. Schaefer find new ways to fulfill his calling? I have no doubt. And in fact, that day he was speaking at the series, the speaker series in Queen Anne that uh, Jen Peterson manages the well. So he was speaking, uh, but not as a pastor. According to the legalities, his voice was the voice of an outcast. Ex-church. And it may be that, like my spiritual director decades ago, Mr. Schaefer's voice will end up reaching more people, have a broader reach outside the church. Uh, It may be that his voice will gather in those who are unchurched, who among them no doubt many gay and lesbian people who might have come to church, might want to come to church, if only they felt welcome. But I can't help thinking that Schaefer's voice is too valuable to be excluded from a church in need, and I find myself not wanting to lose that voice from within my own church home. Whose voices do we lose when we make outcasts? And how do we maintain community in the midst of these struggles? In the passage from Scripture that we heard today, the parents of the man born blind were not willing to lose their community, to risk that when confronted by the elders over their son. And we can have compassion for them. How terrifying! Here come the elders questioning you. Maybe they're going to make charges against you because of something your son has done that you had nothing to do with. The thought of losing your community. And in those days, let's face it, every relative, every friend they had was a member of that synagogue. Without that source of support, it could literally have been a life-threatening situation for them. Where would they go? Where could they turn? And so they say, Don't ask us. Ask him. Oh, yes, he was born blind. But this Jesus thing, we don't know anything about that. Possibly the man born blind can understand the position his parents are in. Possibly he can even forgive them. But what message are they giving him? In a choice between our community and you, our son... Reverend Schaefer made the opposite choice, and he's paying dearly. And we don't have to agree with him. We don't. To recognize his act as motivated by love, the love of a father for his son. We don't have to agree to understand the sacrifice he was willing to make, to see the courage of his convictions, and yes, to admire that, whether or not we agree, 
admire his willingness to lose so much for love of his son. We don't have to agree to pray for him and his family and the church. And where did the man born blind turn? When the temple elders and his parents and the community made him an outcast. Where could he go? Really, this is my favorite part of this passage of this scripture. In the text, it says, Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, when he found him, Jesus went looking for the man born blind to gather him in. When he found him, he said, Do you believe in me? And the man said, Yes, Lord, I believe. And Jesus gave the outcast not just sight, but a community, a life, a path to walk, and someone to follow on the way. And isn't that what we, all of us, are to do? Not just for ourselves, not just for our children, but for the whole world. Will you pray with me? God, God of the outcast, God of welcome, God of boundless grace, heal the parts of ourselves that we outcast, our shames, our pain, our hidden parts. Heal the parts of our community that are splintered. Heal our relations with one another and and help us bring your boundless grace to the world, a world in need. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.